You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Spanish philosopher Fernando Sabatar once said, we cannot talk about our lives, ourselves, what we desire or fear, or what surrounds us without reference to time. So we say things like this. Maybe you've said some of these phrases. All I have is time. That's getting at the idea that everyone has the same hours and minutes and seconds each day. We recognize the precious commodity of time and there's a, uh, a weight on us to know how to spend our time wisely. Or maybe you've said this before, I don't have time. That's getting at the, the reality that we often run out of it and we don't have time for a certain task. Where did the time go? This captures that feeling of loss at the passage of time. I know as a parent, I've said this one, there aren't enough hours in the day. It's getting at the frustration, fatigue that our to-do lists never get done. Or maybe you've said, I need to make the most of my time. You say this when you feel a purposed urgency to get things done and not to waste time. We want to be efficient and productive. Maybe you said, when will my time come? This gets at that restlessness we feel as we wait for the future to give way to the present. There's something that we're longing for, that we hope will arrive. Maybe you've said, I've been waiting for this time to come. Anticipation gives way to enjoyment because the wait is finally over. Or maybe you don't want this time to arrive and you say... I I don't want this time to come because you're apprehensive or maybe fearful of what's coming. Or maybe in a state of reflectiveness, you've said, I've wasted all those years. This expresses pain and regret at a string of poor decisions. Or often when we're gathered with friends and family, we say, hey, do you remember the time? And you delight in memories of the past and you consider our times and our seasons. It is impossible to think about our lives, to think about our desires, the the things that we want most or the things that we fear without reference to time. We are bound by it. Listen to how Zach Eswine captures our experience of time. He says, time is lungs. Without it, nothing under the sun can breathe. Time forms the environment in which we live. Time is like a parent. We are its kids. It is always in our business. It's like a foreman and we are its employees. It has a say in our work and how we go about it. This morning we're continuing and are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes as we search for meaning in our time-bound life under the sun. Ecclesiastes is one of the five wisdom books in the Old Testament. And it's been said that the Psalms will teach us how to worship, the Proverbs how to behave, Job how to suffer, the Song of Solomon how to love, 
and Ecclesiastes on how to live. See, Ecclesiastes was written to help us search for meaning in the meaningless, something lasting in the transient, something tangible in the elusive, something profitable in the futile. And this morning, as we continue and we come to chapter 3, the preacher is looking at our experience of time. It's one of those just universal realities. Everybody experiences time. Now just think about where we've been so far. In chapter 1, the preacher sets the stage for what you can expect in life. And he says everything, absolutely everything and everyone has been plagued by vanity. And we looked at that Hebrew word hevel. And we saw that it means vapor or smoke or wind. It's a, it's a word picture. In a couple of months, when you walk outside on a cold New England morning and you exhale, you will see your breath. But it will disappear just as quick. If you blow out a candle, you see a puff of smoke, but then it's here and gone. The preacher says life is plagued by that kind of elusiveness. Life is brief. Meaning is elusive. Legacies fade. Generations come and go. You and I live in that fraction of time between forgotten and will be forgotten. And that heavy truth in chapter 1 was meant to be a sledgehammer to knock down the walls. It's, a, it's the demolition phase of a remodel. Pretenses must come down in order for something solid and beautiful to be built. And then as we segue into chapter 2, the preacher walks us through this lifelong journey to see what in this world, if anything, under the sun will satisfy. And so he played the game. Will it satisfy? And he, he went through various things. No expenses were spared. No rock was unturned. Solomon had unrivaled wealth and unparalleled wisdom to try everything under the sun. So he tried a, a life of laughter and entertainment. But like the comics of our day, he realized that when the laughter stops, the silence is terrifying because in the silence, you're painfully aware that your problems are still there. See, distraction only provides delay. It doesn't actually solve your problems. So the preacher turned to uninhibited pleasures from sexuality to food to alcohol. And he found that no pleasures in this world were able to fully satisfy the longings of his soul. Temporary gratification only gave way to more emptiness. Then he turned to unequaled productivity. He started businesses, planted forests and gardens. He built pools and monuments and castles and homes and temples and parks. He was more productive than any of us will ever be. And on one hand, he found there is something good and satisfying about a good, long, hard day's work. But ultimately, even this was a chasing after the wind. That satisfaction from work eventually fades. And one day, even good work will come to ruin. And so now he considers and he turns and he says, If all of this is true, then how do we spend our time? If life is plagued by vanity and ultimately there's no lasting satisfaction, then what do we do with the time that's been given to us? This is the question of chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. So in this section, we're going to see three movements. First, in in verses 1 to 8, the preacher will challenge us to reflect on our time. 
In these verses, Solomon gives us a poem. And poetry is one of those things that just naturally invokes reflection, doesn't it? You have to slow down. You can't just get the meaning in one pass. You have to read it over and over. And he's inviting us into a life of reflection to think about our time. He wants, to, he wants us to slow down and to be thoughtful about the different seasons of life. All of which Solomon's going to tell us have been appointed by God. And then in verses 9 to 13, the preacher will challenge us to receive our time with joy and gratitude. To receive it. Because time is a gift. And a gift is something you receive. And in these verses, Solomon turns from poetry to prose to help us understand this poetry. And he says, our time is a gift to be received with grateful hearts. And then finally in verses 14 and 15, the preacher will call us to revere the God of time. To revere the God of time. So in these verses, Solomon shows us that God is sovereign over all of time. And his purposeful providence should lead us to revere him. To hold him in the highest of regard. That fear of the Lord that is so prevalent in the Old Testament. So we'll see that we need to reflect on our time. To receive our time with joy and gratitude. And finally to revere the God of time. Let's turn again to the word of the Lord in chapter 3 verse 1. For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. There is a time to tear and there's a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now even people who are unfamiliar with the Bible in any kind of meaningful way are often familiar with this passage. It's often read at funerals. It was the inspiration behind the song Turn, Turn, Turn by Peter Seeger made famous by the birds. And for good reason. It's really brilliant poetry just from a literary uh, perspective. There are 14 pairs. And if you know anything about the Hebrews, seven is their favorite number. It's a number of perfection. It's a number of wholeness. It's a number of completion. And so 14 pairs means there's, there's two sevens. So it's perfection on top of perfection. It's, it's, it's looking at this rhythm of seven and it provides a poetic sweep of human experience. There's birth and death and laughing and weeping and gathering and scattering and building and tearing down and silence and speaking. War and peace and bration and separation, healing and killing and planting and harvesting. In one sense, this list is generic enough to include everyone and specific enough that when you start to read it, perhaps you were doing this, as you heard the scripture read... As you started to hear those words, you filled in the blanks with examples from your own lives. It's hard to hear that there's a time for mourning and not have memories of a time when you were crying. Or a time for laughter and not fill in with your own memories of laughter. 
See, every human from the youngest in this room to the oldest in this room can find commonality on this list. And as you grow older and log more years, you start to have multiple experiences on this list. And so with this, these pairs, you have these polarities. You have an extreme on one end, birth, the beginning, and death, the end. And they're, they're set in opposition in order to make a whole. So it's setting up a, a spectrum. See, birth to death is the whole life. Laughing and weeping is, is, is indicative of the whole spectrum and range of human emotion. So not only does this list bring you through all of the different experiences you'll experience in life, it also brings you through the range of those different experiences in life. This list is meant to cover the full range of human life. Planting and harvesting, building and tearing down. It covers this full range of production and activity and laughter and weeping. Covers all of human emotion. See, this pair not only includes the things themselves, but the range of activity along each one of those spectrums. In addition to the 14 pairs, the word time is written 28 times throughout the pairs. You can't escape time just like you and I can't escape it. It's all over this poem. 28 is another multiple of 7. So it's 7 on 7 on 7 on 7. It's symmetrical, it's rhythmical, it's beautiful. That's why humans have connected with this poem throughout the millennia. Another reason why I think we connect with this poem is because though it's about time, the time in this passage isn't counted by days and calendars and months. But the time in this poem is counted by relationships. See, when you read this, it feels more like photos and videos and songs. You can almost hear the soundtrack behind it because the, the pairs in this are impacted by relationships. See, the seasons of our lives are marked by relationships. So we weep and we laugh with people. There's war and peace with people. There's planting and harvesting with people. The heartache and the pain in these verses are often caused by the breaking or losing of relationships. The joy and the laughter in these verses are caused by the establishment and the celebration of relationships. The power of this poem is it's brief, yet it can cause hours of reflection. As you think about all of the different seasons of your life. There's three things I want to point out throughout this poem and the time that we have. We could spend hours just dissecting this poem, but three things I want you to see. First is that God rules over time. God rules over time. Verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That word, the Hebrew word for season means an appointed time. It's not just that time comes and goes, it's, it's appointed. There's an order to it. There's a rhythm to time. What's the implication here? If there's an appointment, there's someone making that appointment. Appointments don't just happen. It's because someone has been intentional about it. That's what this Hebrew word is capturing, is that the seasons of our lives are put there with it for a reason. There's not just time, there's a timekeeper, an organizer, 
Someone ordaining and setting and establishing those rhythms. And here's the breaking headline news of today. It's not you or me. We don't appoint the seasons and times of our life. God does. He rules over our time. The moments, the milestones, the routines, the remarkable, the macro, the micro, all of the, the, the points along the spectrum has an organizer. And while that truth might be implied or wrapped up in that Hebrew word, that's exactly what he says in verse 11. If we can skip there for just a moment, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Who is the one organizing? Who is the one setting the seasons? Who is the one who arranges it so that it is beautiful in its time? God, not us. Every time is appointed, but not by us, but by the Lord of God time every moment that you live is ordained but you and I don't ordain them there's an irony here as we enter chapter three if you think about Solomon's life and you think about where he's uh where, where we've gone over these first two chapters we see the preacher's experiment to find satisfaction and it seemed like as we walked through that, there was like nothing outside of his control. If he had an idea to try it, he was able to do it. He had the means, he had the power, he had the position. Everything was at his disposal. He got everything he wanted. From women to land to entertainment to productivity. It seemed like nothing was outside of his control. And yet in chapter 3, you see Solomon confronting the illusion of his control. Because just like Solomon, there's one thing he couldn't buy. It's time. There's one thing Solomon knows he, even he, couldn't control. It's time. See, it's God who establishes and, and appoints the season of our lives. Look with me at Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. The prophet says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How is, how is there no one else like him? Here's why. He's the only one who can declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times and things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish my purposes. One of the distinguishing realities of God is he can stand outside of time and say, all of my purposes, all of my counsel will stand. I can, I can declare that from the beginning to the end. There is no one who controls time like the Lord. And as you go through this poem in these first eight verses, you see God's providence running throughout the poem and throughout the prose. I love this helpful definition from John Piper on defining God's providence. He says, the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will completely he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. So here's what that means. God's providence is the exercising of his sovereignty, meaning his absolute control in achieving his purposes. Now the good news is that because God is all-knowing and all good, because of those things, his purposes are for our good. And he's able to do them. See if God were in control but not wise and good. Then we wouldn't be able to trust him. He would be maniacal right. But if he weren't 
all-powerful, then he wouldn't be able to actually do the things that he says he's going to do. But because God is wise and good and in control, it means that we can trust in his providence as he accomplishes his intended purposes. So when he says things like, I will make everything beautiful in its time, that's not contingent on our understanding of how he's going to make it beautiful. We just trust he will make it beautiful in his time. When Paul says in Romans 8 that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, you don't, it's not contingent on if you know how that's going to happen. It's that he says, I, I will make it happen. When we saw in Genesis, when Joseph at the end of his life said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It meant that we can trust in how God is working out his providence, regardless of our ability or understanding of it. In short, God rules over time. And friends, that is really good news. Really good news. Second, not only does God just rule over time in general... Because I think a lot of times we like to go, yes, yes, God is sovereign over time. But listen, friends, he is sovereign over your time. It's not just at the macro level. It's at the micro level. It's, at the, it's not just theoretical. It's personal. See, it's one thing to believe that God is over all of time in some cosmic general sense. And that's important. But at the same time, we have to see that God rules over your time and my time specifically. See, the preachers reflecting on the times and seasons of our lives and recognizing that ultimately he's the one setting and appointing the, the actual moments and milestones of your life. So in verse 1, we realize that in the same way you and I didn't pick our birthday, guess what? We won't pick our death day either. And you might go, well, what if, what if, what if someone commits suicide? Well, those who take their life are doing so only... On the day already determined by the Lord. He's the one who numbers our days. And one thing you realize as you read this book, as we go through chapter by chapter by chapter, you need to realize that Solomon is confronting his own mortality. He is dealing with his death day. And there is a gravity and an inevitability of his looming death. It's going to come up over and over and over throughout this book. That's why so many people, when they read this, think that Solomon is depressed or he's lost his faith, and he hasn't. What he's trying to do is saying, I want to learn how to live my life backwards. I want to think about the end, the fact that everyone eventually ends up in a box six feet under. And I want to let the weight and the gravity and the inevitability of that day inform every day leading up to it. That's why, that's why this book is teaching us how to live. He's trying to figure out how do we live today in light of the inevitable day of death. Friends, death is coming and it will not consult you. It will not look at your bucket list and make sure that you've done all the things you want to do. It's not going to look at your calendar and go, hey, when, it, when will it be convenient for you? I've got, to, I've got to take you, but we can negotiate, you know, within a few weeks your, your day. No, death will come. One day you are going to die. You can deny it all you want, but your denial doesn't change the inevitability of it all. Our life, think about it like this. You, you remember those hourglasses, right? I have one in my front entryway table. 
and I see it all the time, and it reminds me that my life is like that hourglass. On the day of my birth, it was turned over. And the Lord knows how much sand is in that glass. And you can't stop it. It's not like a board game where you get to come and like stop time. Once it's turned over, the clock is ticking. The sands are running through that little point in the middle. And immediately, the clock starts ticking. And one day, the last grain will fall. That is not, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just telling you, that's reality. That is every single person's life. We don't control it. We can't change it. And that's not the only thing that Solomon wants to see. It's not just at the beginning and the end the Lord appoints. He appoints everything in between. So the preacher says there are seasons for planting and seasons for harvesting. See, life can't just all be all about planting, right? There's got to be a harvest. There's a rhythm to it. Now just think about this example for a moment. You don't control the growing seasons, do you? You can't say, listen, I don't care that it's winter. I'm going to go out there and plant. Well, that's foolish, right? You, you can plant a seed at the wrong time. Like You have the ability to do that. That doesn't mean it's a good idea to do that. You, and then you can't expect a good harvest. If you want a good yield, and I know we're not farmers in here, but if you want a good yield, you've got to submit to the seasons and the rhythms of the growing season. David Gibson writes, we make real responsible decisions every single day. But in reality, we each know that the seasons of life are almost completely out of our hands. God rules over time and he rules over your time. And if you think about it, you look at that list of seasons. Almost all of them are uh, like seasons of laughing and weeping are, are things we're reacting to. The planting and the harvesting, the, the war and peace, they're, they're things that we're responding to or making plans in order to, 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 to organize our lives. See, control is an illusion. We are in far less control than we live our day-to-day lives. God rules over all of time and he rules over your time. And third, this poem is meant for us to be reflective on our time. Life is complex. There are good times and hard times, and there's those in-between times. There will be times to risk where that is the right option. There will be times to mitigate risk where playing it safe is the right option. There will be times when things act upon us where we have to react and make hard decisions. And there will be times in your life where you need to take initiative and break ground and risk. There will be times where you should be determined and with every fiber in your being not give up. And there will be times in your life when the right move is to give up. There will be times when you just need to count your losses and throw in the towel. There will be times in your life where you have to navigate relationships. Remember I said that a lot of this list is relational in nature. Our life is not only complex, but it's incredibly relational. Relationships will make you cry. They will make you laugh. You will dance. You will mourn. There'll be times when you need to speak and you'll need to say a really hard truth and you'll need to figure out how to do it in a way that is truthful and direct and yet loving and there will be times when you need to say nothing at all. 
And you need to just be there and be silent. It's not just that it's the preferred thing to do, but that it's the right thing to do. Not every time is a time for speaking, and not every time is a time for silence. And here's the point the preacher is making. You notice he didn't give you a guidebook on how to figure out the difference between those times. He's saying you need to learn to be reflective. It almost feels like reflection is almost anti-American. We're, we're a culture of doing and getting things done. Not a culture of thoughtfulness and reflectiveness. The point the preacher is making that there will be an appropriate time in your life for every one of these items. And you need to grow in wisdom to know how to discern between them. And you only grow in that kind of wisdom as you make mistakes and you reflect on those mistakes and go, that was a time I should have kept my mouth shut and I didn't. That's a personal example for me. Right? And learn from it and be thoughtful about the next time. Now, if I could just speak as your preacher and your pastor for just a minute. We live in a world that doesn't do reflection really well, do we? Our culture expects immediate answers, don't they? Like, I, I'll get a text message, and an hour will go by, and, and then I'll see those little dots are like, hey, what's the answer? And it's like, what? You know, they expect, like, immediate response, right? You get an, get an email, and it's like, it's been four hours. Why haven't you replied? You're like, well, I was, I was doing other things, you know? But we just expect immediacy, right? Everything is microwave or air fryer. It's like instant pot, pressure cooker, I, I want to take something that normally takes eight hours and I want it in five minutes. That's the culture we live in. We value productivity and immediacy over reflection and patience. Now hear me. I'm not advocating that we pendulum swing and become a culture of endless introspection. Where we never make decisions or we never get things done. That's not what I'm saying. But that said, I do think Ecclesiastes is calling us to be more thoughtful than we are about the choices we make and how we use the time that we've been given. And friends, there's no quick fix for this. There's no like YouTube video that you can watch in eight minutes and have a more effective life afterwards. There's not a uh, 10 steps to achieve the reflective life. It doesn't work like that. That said, here's some practical things I think that will help. So again, this is not a fix-it list. But I think if we could put some of these things into practice, we would begin to become more reflective. We need to build more time in for quiet thinking. We don't do silence well. I'm telling you right now, if I stopped talking and just we sat here in silence, you would get awkward. You would feel the tension in the room. And our lives are not designed for quiet, thoughtful reflectiveness. We've always got music playing. We've got, I mean, I don't even see people walking outside without things in their ears anymore. Nothing we do is just quiet. I mean, when's the last time you were in the car by yourself with nothing on? Just absolute silence. To just give yourself thoughtfulness, time. When is the last time you said, hey, I'm getting an hour and I'm not going to talk I'm not going to listen. I'm, I'm just going to have some space to think. To take one area of my life and just put it under the microscope. I don't even suggest you trying to rethink your whole life in one sitting. 
just one area for one hour and just sit there and be quiet and think. My guess is we don't do that regularly. We need regular rhythms for thinking, quiet time for planning. We need to tell people, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Like we need to be willing to say, hey, that's a great question. I just need some time to think about it. People are not entitled to your immediate answer. They're not. They may feel like they are, but look at me. They're not. And you can tell them, I'll get back to you on that. You can do that. Often we need to pick up the phone and schedule a face-to-face conversation instead of quick-tempered, hasty text messages. I mean, spend 10 minutes online and my point is proven. Our culture is just all about hasty, quick, unthoughtful, unreflective conversation. We need more space to mourn and to grieve. We're supposed to have times in our life where we're weeping. Where we're crying. Where we're letting the lament of what's happening actually happen. We need to create space to laugh and just sit in the moment and go, this is good. And not quickly move to the next thing We need more friendships. We need to listen to each other. Goodness gracious, we need more prayer. And we need to learn to ask, Lord, what time is it? I want that to become part of the culture of Seven Mile Road where we say, Lord, what time is it? As we look at a situation, as we look at a a decision we're supposed to make, where, where it's like, hey, is this a time to double down? And go hard and be determined? Or is this the time to give up? Lord, what time is it? Lord, is this the time to be silent? Or Lord, is this the time to speak? Lord, what time is it? How much could we grow in wisdom if we learned to ask that simple question? Lord, I know there are seasons of my life. Lord, what time is it? We need to read this list in Ecclesiastes several times a year. Learning and accepting the ebb and flow of life, the seasons and times the Lord has appointed to us. As we consider building a life of meaning, the preacher says, be reflective on your time. Now let's quickly keep going. Look at verses 9 to 13 to see that we are supposed to also receive our time with gratitude. Verse 9. After that great poem, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Verse 9 feels like a sucker punch after a a great poem like that, doesn't it? It's like you're all thoughtful and singing that song. And then all of a sudden he's like, what toil do you have in your life? Boom, nothing. After all the memories and moments and milestones of your life, Solomon asks that rhetorical question again. What do we gain from all of life's ups and downs? And the answer to that question is nothing. See, the poetry gives way to the harsh reality that after all the rhythms and routines of our lives, we will still die, take nothing with us, and soon be forgotten. Now, it's important not to miss the nuance of the preacher's argument. 
He's not saying that because we gain nothing from our toil that everything is meaningless. That's not what he's saying. That would be the nihilist or the cynical approach. Right? The nihilist says nothing matters. There is no truth. There is no meaning. There's no morality, no future. So all you have in life is despair. And by the way, I don't, I don't recommend that philosophy of life. Or the cynic says, listen, everything is just trite. Meaning is fiction. Striving after fame and riches. It's all irrelevant. Nothing in our lives are really that important. And the meaning you find is just a story you tell yourself. Similar to, it's similar to nihilism, but instead of despair, they figure, but you might as well enjoy what you can. But there's always an edge to them. That's not what the preacher's saying. He's saying, he's trying to get you to see that everything has meaning in its proper place and time. See, our problem is, is that we take things that were never meant to be uh, fulfilling and ultimately satisfying and we raise them to that place of ultimate significance. So we routinely put things out of order. But what I want you to see is the preacher hasn't lost his faith. He's not depressed. He's not giving up. He's just confronting hard truths of life that we are so often unwilling to face. So instead of confronting them, we usually distract ourselves and live in denial. But the preacher won't let us do that this morning. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So as he reflects on the reality that we gain nothing from our toil, he says, I've seen and observed the task of human life. And I've seen the work and toil, the way we live, live our lives. And here's what I've seen. God has made everything beautiful or fitting in its time. That's an incredible statement of faith. What he's saying is everything is properly placed by the one who has unlimited wisdom and unrivaled control. So that because God is sovereign and wise... His purposes are perfect and everything is working toward its intended plan. Everything we do, every moment of your life, falls within God's plan. All of life that Solomon has just summed up in those first eight verses are part of God's plan. And not only does the preacher say is God's purposes, uh, his purposeful sovereignty, is it evident and inevitable, it's also beautiful. It's beautiful. And this is an incredible statement of faith. And then he goes on and he says, despite the fall, every human heart remembers Eden. That's what he means by there's eternity placed in our hearts. He, he knows that we were all made for something bigger. Every human heart knows that we were made for, human, uh, for eternity. Every human heart knows that the times of my life aren't the only times there are. Now we're going to find out, especially in the, in the next, uh, uh, next week's sermon, that Solomon's understanding of life after death is incredibly undeveloped. He doesn't have the kind of understanding we do with the, with the rest of Revelation. But there's one thing he knows. We were made for eternity. He knows that we were made for eternity. And though the past may be forgotten by generations that come and go, though the toil of our lives will not amount to much, he knows that we were made for something more. And he knows that we will ultimately not be forgotten by the Lord. Why? Because there is one who knows the beginning from the end. There is one who knows all of eternity in its totality. And this is part of what makes things difficult for us. Because he says that God has set things from beginning to end, but we don't know the whole story. 
We know we're part of a larger story. We know that we were made for eternity, but we don't know eternity past and eternity future. We know we're part of a larger story that, that if we knew that whole story, it would make sense of all of our lives' ups and downs. But the problem is, Solomon says, we're limited in our ability to access that greater, fuller story. Imagine with me a large mural. I mean, so large, it's hundreds of feet wide. It's multiple stories tall. But you're only allowed to stand and look at it from right here. Right? In that sense, you'd be nearsighted. All you can see is what's in front of you. And you're never allowed to go all the way back, which is what you'd have to do in order to see the whole mural, right? You can only see just this little bit of space right in front of you. Friends, that's our life. We, we're given just this little space, this little allotment. And what we see is, is, is good and, and we can make some sense of it. But the only way to know the whole story, the only way to see the whole mural is to get the kind of perspective you would have if you were able to get far away from it, to see the whole thing. Now God sees the whole story. He's planned out the whole story. We just see our tiny part. And Solomon is, is expressing a frustration. And that's okay. That's one reason I love this book is it gives humanity, it, 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 it at least acknowledges our feelings to go, have you ever felt frustrated that you don't know the whole story? Solomon's saying, I have felt that too, and it's okay. But by faith, we have to see that there is more to the mural. There is more to the story. There is an overall design that escapes us, but it doesn't escape him. He is the one who has painted it. He is the one who has stepped back and looked on it and said, it is good. Now we can see what's happening in our immediate context, but we, we can never get far back enough to see the overall design. And yet we know there is one. That's the eternity in our hearts. So what are we to do? Verse 12. Solomon says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Solomon says, time is a gift. Your days and seasons are a gift from God. So he says, enjoy them. Do good with them. Savor the simple. That's a phrase I've started using in my home as I've been reading and thinking through Ecclesiastes. We need to be a family that just savors the simple. The small, simple things. Ecclesiastes is saying, savor them. Linger on them. Enjoy them because they are a good gift. They're a good gift. We don't know the beginning from the end. We will not see the whole mural. Our job is not to know every single detail of how everything fits together. But our job is to receive the time and seasons he gives us with gratitude. And he says this is God's gift to man. Trust him, enjoy the gift, and the gift giver. Romans 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Or give thanks to him. But they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's Paul's argument in chapter 1. God has made himself known ever since the creation of the world. And he's saying you should be able to go outside and look around and see that there is a creator. 
whether you look through a microscope or a telescope, everything points to a designer. Everything points to a creator. And so Paul says we are without excuse for the way that we deny him in theory and in practices. And so what happens? Here's what he says. We know God exists. Every single person does. And we know that therefore we owe him everything. But we dishonor him and we fail to give thanks to him. At the very heart of humanity's uh, problem of sin is that we are an ungrateful people. So much of our problems and sin in the world simply results from we don't thank God. And we live lives entitled, demanding, and ungrateful. And the preacher is saying the same thing. Time is a gift. And what are you supposed to say when a gift is given to you? Thank you. Right? Someone gives you something? Or you give someone something? What do you do? You usually kind of linger for what? A thank you. It's like this, it's, it's a simple call and response. Like gift given, thank you. And that is supposed to permeate all of our lives. And Solomon says, because time is a gift, you're supposed to be grateful, not entitled. So much of the problems and the grumblings of our life stem from a lack of gratitude. So there are two basic pathways before us here. As you consider the mystery of time and the fact that you only can see one part of the mural... One response is you could become hardened and cynical. You could say, well, because I don't know the whole story, because I can't piece together how all of this fits, how God is going to make it beautiful, you can become hardened, cynical, entitled, and ungrateful. And friends, that is a miserable way to live. It will eat you up. You will, you will despair of hope. You will start to suppress and deny the God-given impulse that you're part of something bigger, Paul says you'll become futile in your thinking and darkened in your heart. You will put your hope in this world. You will try to make lesser, smaller things into ultimate things, and you will constantly go through rhythms of your life unfulfilled and unsatisfied. As you attempt to make this world into the paradise, it will never be. Listen to Paul David Tripp. Everyone hungers for paradise. No one is satisfied with the way things are. So either you try your hardest to turn your life right here, right now, into the paradise it will never be, and therefore become driven and disappointed, or you live in this broken world with the rest and peace that comes from knowing that a guaranteed place in paradise is in your future. Friends, look at me. Your marriages, your jobs, your friendships, your children, your home, your vacation, even this church. It's not meant to satisfy the longings in your soul. Nothing else can. Your legacy will fade. The very memory of you will one day be gone forever. And one path is to become hardened and cynical by that thought or you can take the path Solomon is telling us. And instead of becoming hardened and cynical, 
you can become grateful for the gift of time you've been given. Don't try to make it more than it is. Don't try to make the things in this life more than they are. Receive your gift of time. And I love this. People always think the Bible's anti-enjoyment. He says, enjoy it. He even says, like, eat, drink, and be merry. So as your pastor, I'm telling you, every once in a while, I want you to go get an expensive meal. I'm talking about the one where you look on the right side of the menu where the price is, and you're like, oh, my goodness. And I'm saying, get that steak. Like, go get an expensive meal, a nice bottle of wine, savor, enjoy, linger. Do it with good friends. Enjoy gifts God has given you. Enjoy this life for what it is and don't try to squeeze paradise out of it. Because no matter how hard you squeeze, paradise will never come out of it. We spend so much of our life trying to wring out paradise and, and, and the things that we've been given. And that's not what it was meant for. Do good. Not to build a legacy so that you have some eternal significance here, but simply for the enjoyment of right now. Of making the world a better place where you are right here. Receive each season the Lord brings knowing he makes everything beautiful in its time. Set proper expectations. Don't think life is going to be all laughter and no weeping. Expect I'm going to have times where things are hard. I'm going to have times where things are great. And go to bed each day tired yet grateful to the Lord for the season and time you're in. What are we to do with the time we've been given? We need to be reflective and thoughtful about it. Second, we need to receive it with joy and gratitude. And finally, and this one's quick, revere the Lord of time. Verse 14, Solomon said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. As the preacher brings this section to a close, he doubles back and affirms God's providence and his purposes and sovereignty over everything. Though our efforts will fade, God's purposes endure forever. We should take great comfort that nothing we do or don't do can thwart the purposes of God. That reality should lead us to a fear of the Lord. Look what David Gibson writes. The message of Ecclesiastes is not that life is full of good times and bad times and you're just supposed to roll the punches. Rather, the message is that life is full of good times and bad times that we cannot control. But the patterning of our lives this way, lives this way is, is part of a bigger pattern that God does control. So he says, in or, so what we're supposed to do is revere him, run to him, See, the fear of the Lord is one of those concepts that comes up over and over again in the Bible's wisdom literature. That's what he means so that you might fear him. It's, it's this idea of revering him. When we studied Proverbs, we defined the fear of the Lord like this. To fear the Lord means that God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. The preacher is saying is that when you reflect on your time, when you consider the reality that God is in control of it, it should lead you to revere him to fear him, to make him your highest priority, to make him your deepest love, to make him your foundational trust. 
you realize that the past, present, and future are all held together in his hands. And listen, that will either frustrate you, it'll feel like a burden to you, or that reality will be like a warm blanket on a cold New England night. That God is in control. So if you're going to enjoy the life God has given, if you're going to become a people that savor the simple and that receive your, your, your life with gratitude, you've got to come to a place where you believe it's good news to say, God is in control and I am not. And if you feel frustrated or fearful at your inability to control time and orchestrate your day, Solomon says, run to the one who does control time. Run to the one who has orchestrated your days. Run to the one who makes everything beautiful in its time. What we know, what Solomon knew in part, we know in full because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we consider him making everything beautiful in its time, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons friends we don't have to wonder how does God make everything beautiful in its time at just the right time at that beautiful time God sent his son to take on flesh to bring an end to the futility and vanity of this world Romans 5 6 to 8 says while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person Though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time. At just the most beautiful time. The son of God, Jesus Christ, died for ungodly sinners like you and me. And here's how it all ends. Revelation 22. I am the alpha and the omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen and come Lord Jesus. So at just the right beautiful time, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord of all time will come again. See, this is God making everything beautiful in its time. Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ will come again. So with the time that we've been given, let's put our faith in the one who makes all things new and will make everything beautiful in its time. Let's pray.